0: Hi, you are listening to Decisions Change Everything. I'm your host, Kimberly Mathis, and this is episode 26. This episode is going to be a follow up from last week, it is part of a series on the differences between therapy and coaching, why I decided to leave my therapy practice to become a full time coach and, and my thoughts on some of the common criticisms of the coaching industry. I want to give you all of this information so that you can make a more informed decision when you are thinking about hiring someone to work with, whether that is a therapist or a coach. These podcasts are not intended to sway you, to tell you that one is better than the other. They're really just meant to give you more information so that you can make your own decisions, which is what I love to coach on. That is the work I love to do. So let's jump in. I want to give you a little bit of background on my career as a therapist and then a coach. I graduated with a master's in counseling with a focus on marriage and family therapy. This was when I had, if you listened to last week's episode, you know that I was a crazy person. I had a 21 month old and a five week old newborn when I graduated with my master's degree. Again, like I said last week, no idea how I did that. Do not recommend. It was very difficult. I don't know that I could repeat it now if I tried to, but I did. I'm proud of myself. And immediately after that, I did not go into the workforce because I was a military spouse at the time. My husband was commissioned, um, into the military and was completing medical school. And I knew we would be moving. So, there was no way for me to try to get a license when I would be moving. We ended up moving overseas to Japan for two years. Now, I do highly recommend that. I love Japan. Um, but I was a stay-at-home mom for roughly six years. I did not do anything with the degree that I had. I did not have a job until we got a divorce, and I had to get a job. I had to find a way to you know, support myself. Now, the very first job that I had, it was the, you know, the first salaried paid position that I got using my degree. And it was for a community mental health organization that um, worked with children in foster care, um, and families that were doing like, you know, supervised visits, families that were fostering kids. And my area that I was assigned to was basically the kids from age 18 to 24 who were aging out of the foster care system. And frankly, they didn't want any help from anybody anymore. They wanted to be out of the system completely. I knew on day one, when I went in to like shadow someone and learn what I was supposed to be doing, I knew I was going to be getting another job. I knew that this job was not for me. I lasted three months before looking for a different position And finding one in a group practice. And they agreed to supervise me because I was not yet licensed. So they agreed to supervise me and have me see clients. And I loved it there initially. I loved it. I worked with, I didn't really have any choice over who I worked with. I worked with whoever they gave me. And um, I worked there for about a year and a half before I found out there was some sketchy shit happening. When it came to filing insurance, they were not necessarily telling the truth on everything. And you guys, this is a whole other debate about insurance and how things are paid for. But at that practice, just so you know, I want you to know that there are therapists who are in these positions. I was a single mom, right? Um, I was in a relationship, but... I was also trying to support myself, so, and my kids. So at this job, because they were taking some of the state-funded insurance programs, um, like in Tennessee, we have TennCare, right, or Medicare. Uh, And because I was being employed as part of this group, like a, a contractor, they took a portion of the payments from clients, right? They took their cut their cut was something like 33%. It was quite a bit. And there were times where I would work with a client for a full hour. It would be billed to one of these like state um, or federal funded healthcare companies. And my portion that I would receive for that hour of work, the lowest it ever was was $7, $7 with my master's degree for an hour of work. Whew. It was tough. It was tough, you guys. So when I found out about some sketchy shit going on, I was like, okay, I need to get out of here. Part of what also prompted me leaving that group practice was that I really wanted to work towards my license licensure And in order to do that as a therapist, as a counselor, you have to find a supervisor. Now, this is someone who has been licensed for a long time, who has completed extra training in order to supervise other therapists in training. And this is not free by any means. Like People become supervisors because they love to do it, but also because it's another way to get paid. So I would pay out of pocket. I had to find a supervisor to pay out of pocket for every hour. And there are a specified number of hours that you need in order to complete your supervision for licensure. So I just did a quick search online just to make sure I have my numbers correct. In order for me to get my license as a marriage and family therapist in the state of Tennessee, which is where I was, I needed to complete two years of at least a thousand hours of face-to-face clinical practice. So that's a thousand hours of working one-on-one with clients, sometimes in a group, you could do a group as well, but it's basically in person, right? 1,000 hours of clinical work and 200 hours of supervision by an approved supervisor now, sometimes supervision would be $75. Sometimes it would be 100 If I could split it, like if there were two of us, that's usually when it was a little bit cheaper because you're allowed X number of hours as part of group supervision. So, like there's more than one therapist at a time with a supervisor. But think about, like I've paid for my graduate degree and... I'm getting paid, at, you know, sometimes $7 an hour and I'm needing to pay for these hours of supervision. And on the cheap side, we're talking like ten dollars to $15,000 for those 200 hours. So I ended up leaving this group practice. I looked and looked for another job. I could not find one and I needed to get out of there. So kind of on a whim because... I needed to do something, I decided to start my own practice. Now in my state, you are allowed to do this, even if you are not licensed, as long as you're being supervised, like it has to be explicitly stated, right? That you're under supervision. Um, but you can basically hang out a shingle as they say, and start your own practice. So that is what I did. And I loved it. It was so nice to be able to work for myself and make my own schedule and choose what clients I wanted to work with. And, you know, it, it was just really, really nice having that freedom and flexibility, especially as a mom of two young children. So I ended up working in private practice for myself as a therapist for roughly four years. I think it took me about two to get everything completed for my licensure. I applied for license. That was a whole process in and of itself. I took the exams. I passed. I you know, filled out everything, sent in all my hours, all my records. And I got licensed, I think in roughly 2018. Now, this whole time, I realize now looking back, I was kind of a coachy therapist. I had in the back of my mind since working with a coach, I had worked with coaches on and off since my divorce um, on various things you know join some programs or or did a course held online by a coach. I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to do a coach training, that this was something I probably wanted to go into whether it was adding it to my therapy practice or maybe being a coach full time. And so in 2019, I signed up for a coaching training. I was so excited to do it. I'd finally decided, you know, to pull the trigger and it was a 9-month training. I went through a lot of coaches go through the life coach school. I went through a training done by Martha Beck and it was great. And about the time that I signed up for my life coach training, my life started falling apart because I started this whole long story, but I started questioning my sexuality. I started learning more about myself. My marriage, um, I got married. So it was my second marriage started falling apart. Of course it did. Of course it did. As soon as you sign up for life coach training, you need some life coaching. Seems fitting. So this entire time, while I am having my therapy practice, I am working as a therapist. I get licensed. I'm like now a licensed professional out on my own. There were things that were kind of gnawing at me. And things that I knew I didn't love about the therapy profession, about how things were currently structured. And I want to go over all of those with you because all of these things, especially from about 2018 to 2020, it just kind of culminated in me making the decision to move away from therapy and go full time into coaching. So let's talk about what some of those things were. One of the things that really bothered me, and I talked about it a little bit last week, and the differences between therapy and coaching is that therapy is based on a medical model, which meant that although I called my clients clients, right, they were also seen as patients, I, when I took records, when I took notes, they were HIPAA protected, right? They are considered medical records. Now you have to have a special classification, a special training, um, in order to diagnose with an official diagnosis, um, as a therapist or counselor, nobody can just diagnose something and put it in your file. Where this gets a little wonky, however, is that If a therapist or counselor is filing insurance, the only way that insurance is going to pay for something is if there is a diagnosis listed for billing. So whether or not my clients had a diagnosable issue, if I had been taking insurance, and this is a big reason I did not, I would have to put in their records, I would have to put in the billing, what diagnosis I thought we were treating. And that word also bothered me. When I was working with my clients, the clients that I typically worked with, and because I was in private practice, I could choose for myself which clients were a good fit for me and which were not. I was never really working with people with very acute mental health issues I was not working with people who were um, being severely impacted in their daily functioning or in their cognitive abilities by a mental health issue, a clinical diagnosable mental health issue. A few times there were clients who might have a who might meet criteria, let's say, for postpartum depression, for some depression or anxiety, but Most of the time, the clients that I were working with were just going through some shit. They were just being humans, having a human life. They were dealing with relationship issues, going through divorce. They were dealing with loss or grief or parenthood. They were trying to make decisions about their career and just needed someone to talk to about these things. So I never really looked at my clients as being patients that I was treating. That just never felt like a good fit for me. And even though I wasn't thinking of them or the work that I was doing in that way, because I was licensed, I had to take notes that were specifically about treating these people, treating these women. I saw only women when I was a therapist. So I had to write in my records about the treatment plan. I had to write about these specific interventions, quote unquote, that I was using in order to treat these people. And even though I did not take insurance, I also knew that there were a lot of people just like these women sitting in my office with me and talking to me about these difficult things in their life, There were plenty of women going to therapists or counselors who were taking insurance who probably had no idea that everything was being so pathologized that what they were discussing in session was being so pathologized and written about as though it is a medical issue to be treated, a dysfunction within them that needs to have treatment and that they are getting a diagnosis listed in a record somewhere If they're billing insurance. Now this brings up another issue I had, which is the diagnostic and statistical manual, the DSM that is used for diagnosing anyone with a mental health issue. There are so many issues with the DSM. Now, as someone who went through not all that long ago, questioning my sexuality coming out rather late in life right? Unpacking all of this for myself, using a label of queer or bisexual. This was a major thing for me. When I started really learning more about the DSM, besides just what I was taught in graduate school, like basically how to use it, there have been various iterations of the DSM, like there are always revisions. And in 1974, Okay, the DSM was updated and homosexuality was replaced with a new diagnostic code for individuals distressed by their homosexuality. Previous to that, homosexuality was in the DSM as a mental health disorder, as an issue, as something abnormal that needs to be treated. And this is this is the kicker. Okay, 1974, you're like, okay, well, you know, that's a while ago, but distress Someone feeling distress over their sexual orientation remained in the DSM under different names until the DSM 5 came out in 2013. 2013. Now let's think about this. Distress over one's sexual orientation. That does not necessarily mean if someone is feeling distressed that. They are feeling distress because they are thinking they might be something other than straight, right? And that in and of itself is abnormal, but let's think about where they might be living their family, their religious upbringing, right? Society as a whole, what area of the country, if they're in the U S they live in, there's a lot of reasons to have distress that have nothing to do with it being a problem with the individual. So this thing, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, I can't even say it, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual has faced a lot of criticism because there has been this history of the DSM pathologizing variations in sexuality and gender identity that don't conform to societal norms and classifications of homosexuality as a mental disorder in the these early editions of the DSM, right, even though they were eventually removed, let's think about who is deciding, who is in charge, who is deciding what is normal and what is not. Because if you think back to like the 70s, right, and those earlier versions of the DSM, and even before that, the DSM existed, probably... There were not a lot there was not a lot of diversity in the group of people who were in charge of deciding what goes in this manual, what the criteria are, what symptoms are for disorders. So you have this manual being put together, right? That's supposed to be the guide for what is normal and what is not normal. And there's probably a shit ton of bias and lack of awareness about other groups that is being held by the people in charge of putting all of this together. I mean, shit, you're probably familiar with the term hysteria, right? Which is a diagnosis that was given to women very early on. Like we're talking like early 20th century, right? Maybe even before that I'd have to check my dates, but this was a diagnosis given to women basically If they were doing anything that wasn't viewed as acceptable behavior, it was considered hysteria needed treatment. Some of the common symptoms of hysteria included excessive emotion, increased or decreased sex drive, increased appetite. So I just want you to think about like where our modern notion of mental health is coming from, like the history of it. Right. It has been largely dominated by white, older males and has been crafted and cultivated and put into place by people that were lacking full representation of humanity, of different races, different genders. Right. So it has skewed. And it still has an effect on how we diagnose and think about mental health today. Okay, that's a whole big can of worms that we could get into, but I want to move on for sake of time. So another issue that I had with being a therapist was the way that I felt like therapists were taught to kind of like not be people, right? We were taught to almost be a blank slate right? Don't let people know about your political or social values. Don't tell clients at all about your personal life. Don't even, I remember a, a um, professor in graduate school who even suggested that we not have photos of our family because it could somehow like skew our client's perception of us. Right? So it was supposed to be so much about the client that we would just be this blank slate so that nothing could possibly influence the client. I understand where this was coming from, and it really made me as a therapist feel like I couldn't be a whole person, that I had to constantly worry about what people might find out about me, what they might think about me, that I might be somehow you know, crossing a line or overstepping a bound. A boundary just by being a person. There can be so much anxiety created for someone who is in this profession. And they're supposed to not have anyone know anything about themselves and be going through their own shit while also trying to help people, right? It creates this sense. And this is also for coaching. This is not just for therapy, But it definitely creates this sense that you have to have your shit together all the time because you're supposed to be the expert. You're supposed to have your entire life together and never have any problems because otherwise, how are you supposed to help anyone else, right? There's that power imbalance of like, I'm the expert. I know what's best and I am treating you. So therefore, I can't have any issues. Now, let's think about this especially with all of the stuff that has been happening within the U S in the political system in the last few years, if you were to go to a therapist or counselor and actually this is the scenario that comes to mind because it was an actual thing that happened to someone I know. They had been going to a counselor. They had been working with this counselor as part of a couple. So going for couples counseling they were feeling a little frustrated with how it was going. They didn't feel like it was all that helpful. And then I forget somehow how this happened, but they ended up seeing something on social media. This was from their therapist's personal account, right? Somehow I think they were like friend of a friend or something, something got shared and they realized that this therapist was aligned politically with the op opposite opposing party and that this therapist also was aligned with very traditional biblically based views of gender roles and relationships. And this person could not have been further from that. So I remember having a conversation with this person about how, if she had known that this was the leaning of her therapist she would never have gone to them because as much as we want to say that our own personal beliefs don't get in the way, right? That we can separate them from the work that we're doing. It's very, very hard to actually do that, especially when it involves things like religious views or views about gender views about sexuality. In my opinion, these are important things to know when we keep therapists from being actual people then that hurts clients who may go to a therapist or counselor who is not politically, socially, religiously aligned with them and therefore might be using treatment methods, might be kind of pointing that client in a direction that is not actually a good fit for the client. I really think that we're doing a disservice when we make professionals, mental health professionals, feel like they have to be this blank slate that we can't share openly about what we think. I really think it keeps us from finding the best fit clients for us. It makes clients have difficulty finding a therapist that is the best fit for them. Okay. And here is probably the last straw for me when I was considering going into coaching, adding in coaching, I was already kind of thinking about it. I completed my coaching training and was still practicing as a therapist. I had my license, I had a full practice. And this event happened that kind of just sealed the deal. It was the thing that kind of pushed me out. I, you know, as every single therapist is supposed to do, you are supposed to have malpractice insurance, right? This means that if something were to happen with one of your clients, if um, you're seeing a client and they have a mental health issue that harms themselves or someone else, um, that if they feel like you somehow harmed them, right, there can be a lawsuit. Just like in medical professions, like with a doctor, you have malpractice insurance and as I mentioned before, I worked with a lot of women. That's the only like client base I really worked with, adult women. And because I was and clearly this was on my website, I was a little bit of a feministy with how it, I's how I would say it, feministy therapist, right? I worked on women's issues. I was more progressive and liberal in a very religious area. I had a lot of women who came to me and who were dealing with issues that might be considered a little taboo. I had women coming to me and working on relationships that were unhealthy, at the very least, and sometimes quite abusive. And there was one client in particular, who was in probably the most abusive relationship I have ever personally witnessed. It was not physically abusive, but the Emotional, psychological, and verbal abuse happening to her and her children was awful. It was just awful. So, I worked with this client for a long time and she finished up work with me, got to a better place, um, still with the same partner, but learning how to kind of handle it and stick up for herself because she did not want to end the relationship for various reasons. And it was about a year later that I had an investigator from the health boards show up at my office looking for me. I was informed that a, um, what is the word? A complaint, there we go. Complaint had been filed against me by someone. Now, I did not know who it was. They were not allowed to tell me, but I had gotten an email prior, the week before this, from this former client, just informing me that she was ending the relationship. She was getting a divorce and her soon to be ex had started harassing people. And if I had any contact, I was to get in touch with her and let her know. And she would pass that along to her lawyer. So just one week after this, after getting this email, I find out there's been a complaint filed and long story short, an angry man, decided that he was mad, right? That his wife was leaving him and he was just on a rampage. So he hacked into her client portal. He hacked into her Facebook. He found messages that she had sent to my business Facebook page, business Facebook page. And his complaint was basically that I was telling this client what to do because, in response to something she sent me, I sent her an article about how women take care of themselves after getting a divorce. Now, as a therapist, in your code of ethics, you are not supposed to be telling clients what to do. So, his complaint was basically that I had violated my ethics as a therapist because I was suggesting to her that she should get divorced. Okay, let's all just pause here for a second because this, in my opinion, it was a little fucked up. And I ended up having to go through my malpractice insurance. They hired a lawyer for me. I had to turn over all of my records for this client, every single message that she had sent me in her client portal, which honestly was a good thing on my end because. There were so many messages outlining the abuse where she was telling me about it. And so I had to turn over everything. They combed through everything. I had to be interviewed, basically interrogated, by this investigator from the health licensing board with my lawyer present. It was terrifying. I'm not going to lie. It was so stressful because even though I knew that I had not done anything bad. I had not broken any ethics. And I knew that even though they couldn't tell me who it was, I knew who had filed the complaint, right? I knew it. It was so stressful because my license could have been taken away. I could have been penalized. I could have had to pay a lot of fees. I could have been on probation. It could have ruined my career. It could have put me in the public record as having a violation against my license, against my therapy practice. And all because someone was angry with me. Some man was vindictive because of the work that I had done with his partner. I understand why, of course, we have all of these guidelines, why, of course, we have these licensing boards. And it felt like while they were created to protect the patient, the client that they were being used to penalize me, that there was no protection for me. And having gone through that experience, it was I am the only still to this day the only person I know in my network who has been a therapist who has had to hire a lawyer from their malpractice insurance. My supervisor at the time, and of course I had finished up work with her, but she had been supervising me while seeing this client. I had made safety plans for myself, not just the client because her spouse had guns in the home. I remember one time hearing a click outside in the hallway while seeing another client. And my first thought was he had shown up with a gun. Like it was a very serious situation I contacted my supervisor after this complaint was filed and she has been a supervisor for so long that when Tennessee started giving licenses to marriage and family therapists, her number on her license was like 14. Okay. Something like that. It was like 14, 15. It was in the teens and she had never had this happen to anyone that she knew or had worked with. Okay. That's how rare this was but I went through it and it honestly was kind of the kicker for me. It was after that point that I was like, I want to get out of here. I do not. I want to be able to do the work I want to do without it having to be a medical thing. I don't want to be treating anyone. I don't want to be seen as treating anyone. That is not the work that I want to do. I don't want to be penalized when someone gets mad And because coaching is not regulated, that just does not happen. Someone could still sue you, of course. Anyone can sue anybody in the U.S. But there's not like a regulatory board to go and complain to and say, this person did me wrong. Now, are there pros and cons to that? Of course there are. But after having gone through this experience, like, I just wanted out. I wanted out. So after that whole thing was over, COVID happened, everything shut down March of 2020, And my thought was, well, if everything's going to telehealth anyway, if everything's going online, now might be the best time to go into coaching. So it was at that point that I decided I'm going to stop taking therapy clients. I'm going to slowly build up my roster of coaching clients. And it was by January of 21 that I had completed all of my work with my therapy clients and was only seeing coaching clients. And it was later that year, I believe in maybe April, I actually made the decision to resign my license, which felt like such a big deal, such a big deal. Like the scary thing, like, oh, I'm not going to be professional anymore. What's my psychologist dad going to think? What are all my colleagues going to think? I mean, there was definitely a lot of judgment from peers, from colleagues, both explicitly and not explicitly stated about going into coaching because it was quote unquote, not as professional, but oh my gosh, I have been so happy with my decision. It has felt so, so much better. And part of being a good coach, having been a therapist is to make sure that I always state explicitly in my paperwork, on my website, when clients book a call with me that this is not therapy. We are not treating anything right? We might be talking about some of the same things that someone might bring into a therapy session, but because coaching is not a medical model, right? That is the biggest difference is I am not looking at this as you have a disorder. I'm going to treat you. I'm going to fix you, right? It's, we are going to partner together to figure out what you don't like, what you want to be different and how to make that happen. So I just noticed that this, I think we're at like minute 36 at this point, I haven't even gotten into all of the criticisms of coaching, like some of the really common criticisms that I see and giving you my thoughts about those. Um, if I agree with them, if I don't, and like I said, I think last week, I really don't like super long podcasts, so I'm going to wrap this up now and we'll just continue this series. So next week, we will be talking about the criticisms that I hear most often about the coaching industry, what my thoughts are about those, if I think that those criticisms are fair, or if I think they're a little bit biased. And honestly, it's kind of a mixed bag, but it should be a really interesting podcast episode. It should provide some food for thought. And again, The reason I'm giving you all of this background, there are a couple of reasons. One, I want you to know about me as a person, especially if you are considering working with me one-on-one, hiring me as your coach. I want you to know my background. I want you to know why I'm doing the work that I do. I want you to know how I think about it, right? What informs my coaching philosophy and the foundation of the work that I do, The other reason is that I just want you to have more information about therapy, about coaching, about some of the nuances um, and backgrounds of both of these industries so that you can just make a more informed decision when you are looking for someone to work with. So thank you so much for listening again. I am so appreciative every single week, knowing that some of you are spending time with me. Some of you are taking time out of your day of all the things you could be doing to listen into this podcast. I appreciate it so much and I value your time so much. If you are looking for a one-on-one coach, if you are interested in working with me, I do have room for clients on my schedule. So the first way to begin that process is to schedule a free consultation call. It's just an hour where we connect I get really curious about who you are, about what's going on in your life and what you're looking for. And we just try to figure out what you would like to be different, how we would do that together and whether or not we are a good fit to work with each other. It is no pressure. You are going to leave having understood yourself a little bit better than you did before you got on the call. And it's a great way to spend an hour. You can... Schedule one of those calls by going to my website, www.kimberlymathis.com, or finding me on Instagram and checking out my profile, my link, and my bio. I'm on Instagram at the Kimberly Mathis. Now, one final note, this episode will be releasing while I am in Colorado attempting to snowboard for the first time. So send me some good juju and say a little prayer for me. Hopefully I will not break anything. All right. I will talk with you next week. Thanks for listening and have a good one.